Good morning, church. It's good to see you and be with you today as we continue through uh, the Gospel of Luke. We are ending a, uh, this is uh, toward the end of a section of the Gospel of Luke. This is the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Uh, he's going to turn uh, next week, we're going to see him turn toward Jerusalem uh, and begin traveling there with his disciples. Uh, kind of starts a new, new uh, section of the book of Luke. But today, uh, we're going to see that the disciples aren't ready. The disciples aren't ready. Um, I don't know if you, uh, you watch the show The Office. That's uh, one of my wife and, and my favorite shows. Uh, and the, uh, my wife shared a meme recently that was like, the problem with people who watch The Office is they ask, they don't ask you, did you watch The Office? They say, do you watch The Office? Because you just keep watching it. Uh, and so we, we do, we love this show. Uh, but part of the humor, if you know the show, you'll know part of the humor of the show is Michael Scott. He's the boss of this office, um, and he's, he's completely immature, right? He, he just doesn't have the maturity that it takes to, uh, to run an office, to be in the position he's in. And this is a lot of the, you know, every episode, this is highlighted. There's one whole episode where he's, he, he just has to uh, fill out these reports and send them into corporate before everyone can go home in the office. And so the whole episode is all the employees are trying to get him just to sit on his desk and just sign these reports so they can send them off. And he just keeps procrastinating and he just won't sit down and do it. And he wastes time. Um, and so he's not mature enough. He's not ready uh, for his position, for the situation that he's in. And maybe in your life, you've, you can think of times where uh, you, you've been in a situation that you lack the maturity for. Maybe you should have had it, but you didn't have it. And I think that's what we find our, our, uh, our friends, the disciples, in today, in these, these different narratives and these different interactions. I think we're going to see a lot of their immaturity and how Jesus is, wants to bring them to maturity. Um, so we'll see today that there are uh, three things. They're unbelieving. Disciples are unbelieving. They're proud. And they're territorial. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll dive into the text. Father, would you please speak to us uh, through your word and by your spirit? Would we hear from you? Would we stand not over your word in judgment, but would we stand under your word in submission? Would, would you read us? Would you tell us uh, the, the places in our hearts that we need to change, that we need to mature? Would you reveal those things? And would, would we be open to what you have to say to us? We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. First, the disciples are unbelieving. They're unbelieving. Um, so last week we saw the disciples went up on the mountain, right? The mountain with Jesus. Peter, James, and John, they went up with Jesus. They saw him glorified. He was revealed to them. Uh, he, he gave them a sneak peek of his glory. They saw the kingdom of God, right? He was shining like lightning. Moses and Elijah came and spoke with him. Uh, they heard the voice of the Father, said, this is my son, listen to him. Uh, and so they're coming down from this mountain, the, the quintessential mountaintop experience. And there's no uh, greater mountaintop experience than actually being on a physical mountain with the glorified Son of God. Uh, this is where we get the term from. Uh, and so they're coming down from this. And in every gospel, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, all the synoptics, this story of, of the, the, uh, the demon-possessed son uh, follows the story of the transfiguration. So they go together, right? They go together in some, in some way. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a contrast. There's glory and, and you know, uh, revealing God's majesty and who he is. Um, and then there's just pain and suffering right next to each other. 
And isn't this how life is? Right? There, there's joy and there's beauty and there's times where there's so much peace and love and ho- there's just like, it's great. And, and then right next to that, or simultaneously often, there's what? There's pain, there's loss, there's confusion, there's sorrow, there's heartache. This is, this is life and Jesus enters into all of it. The Bible doesn't say that if you're a Christian, it's just all happy all the time and you rah, rah. Like, no, the Bible says there's mountains and there's valleys and we walk through all of them with the Savior. They come down the mountain and just then a man, verse 38, from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you, look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams the mouth, severely bruising him. Some translations say he's shattering him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. All right? So this man, he's desperate. He's desperate. His son uh, is just a horrible situation. His son is, uh, is shrieking, is, is overcome with the spirit uh, that hurts him all the time, throws him down. Um, and and the, the other... The, Story in Matthew says, throws him in the fire, sometimes in the water. He's always in danger um, because of this demon. And, and the man came to Jesus' disciples and I said, can you, can you heal my son? And they said, yes, we'll do it. And they tried to heal his son. They tried to cast out the demon and they couldn't. They were unable to. So he comes to Jesus himself. Now, why, why couldn't the disciples cast this demon out? Why couldn't they? Well, I think they should have been able to, right? Back in 9-1, Jesus had given them, he'd given the 12 authority to heal people, to cast out demons. They had the authority that they needed. The other, the other, uh, in the other stories, in Matthew and Mark, uh, it's a little more clear. The disciples say, why, why can't we cast it out? And Jesus says, because of your little faith in Matthew. In Mark, he says, this kind can only come out through prayer. And so I think the disciples should have been able to cast it out, but they weren't able to. Right? They, had, they didn't have the faith. They, didn't, they weren't praying, which is about the same thing. Right? Having little faith and little prayers, that's basically saying the same thing. And I think that explains Jesus' reaction. Verse 41, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? It seemed like a shocking response from Jesus. Why would he say that? I don't think he's talking to the, the father who's bringing his son. He's believing. He's bringing his son to Jesus. That's, that's someone who has faith. I think he's talking to his disciples. And he's using language from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy. Unbelieving and perverse generation. This is how God described the generation of the Israelites who came out of Egypt. Right? He saw his mighty works and then in the wilderness didn't believe. Were faithless. He's comparing his disciples to this generation of the Israelites. Right? They, they, they think of the, the, the works that the disciples had seen. And yet, when this man came to help, they didn't pray. They weren't able to help. They, were, they had such little faith. And maybe, maybe there's, there's things in our lives, maybe there's situations in our lives that, that we should be able to handle. We should have the maturity to handle. We should have the faith to handle. We should be able to handle through prayer. Maybe God has given us everything that we need 
to overcome this sin, right? To, to walk in this obedience, to help someone, to serve someone in this way. But maybe, maybe we miss it. Maybe we, do, we don't because of our little faith, because we don't pray. We don't depend on God. We try to do it ourselves. And Jesus, it says, uh, it says, bring your son here. And as the boy was approaching 42, the demon knocked him down, threw him into severe convulsions. He's last-ditch effort, the demon, to, to keep control of him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Um, Jesus heals what the disciples can't. Right? He casts out this demon that the disciples cannot. And where, where his disciples are faithless, he is faithful. Where they are powerless, he is powerful. I think, so, so I, I would just, I think in a room this size, some of you have been, uh, have been hurt by the church. Some of you have come to the church, come to Christians for help, and they haven't helped you. Maybe they should have. And, and I'm sorry. That I'm sorry if the church has let you down. And I understand the, the logic. I understand the, the, the impulse to just write Jesus off. If this is his people, why would, why would I even deal with Jesus? But, but can I just beg you, like, look at, this, look at this passage that Jesus is not his disciples. Right? He, he's, not, he's not his disciples. He's not faithless. He's not powerless. He's not compassionless. Right? He has the power to make you whole. He has the power to make you well. And you can go to him. You can go to him directly. Don't write Jesus off because of his people. Where we are faithless, he remains faithful. Verse 43, and, and they were all astonished at the greatness of God. This was the result of, of Jesus' ministry here. This is a result of all good ministry. Right? They're astonished at the greatness of God. Notice Jesus, they're not astonished at Jesus' greatness. It doesn't say that. It says the greatness of God. Jesus' ministry, he's not even glorifying himself. He's pointing to the Father. He's pointing to God. And, and this is all good ministry. Like, I hope people leave Redeemer, the interaction with us on Sunday morning, you know, wherever, during the week. I hope they leave interaction with us not thinking, man, that was such great preaching. Man, that music was awesome. What, what great programs. What welcoming people. Like, I hope that's not what they're thinking. I hope they're thinking, God is amazing. Can you, can you believe how much God loves us? What Jesus has done. Right? This is the result of all true ministry. We point to him. The thing is, we're just not impressive. It's, we have not, there's nothing about us that's impressive. Right? It's all, anything good in us all comes from our king and points to him. Right? He's the good one. He's the worthy one. He's the one that we praise. And we should point to him. If we continue in verse 43, while everyone was amazed at the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The man, son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Right? This is a contrast to what's happening. Everyone's amazed. It's going great. And Jesus is just trying to prepare his disciples as he's, as he's done before. Like he's, he's continuing to try to prepare them and go, hey, I know this looks like we're going the Messiah power route, but we're not. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. He's trying to remind them. He's trying to prepare them for this. But it says, they, they didn't understand in verse 45. They did not understand the statement. 
It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. They couldn't grasp it. It says, uh, it's, the, it's, the passive, uh, it's a passive verb. It was concealed from them. It doesn't, there's, there's no object. You don't know who has concealed this from the disciples. Some people think it's God, that God has concealed this, not letting his, the disciples understand this yet. It's not time for them to understand yet. Some people think it's Satan who's not letting the disciples understand this. Um, I wonder if there's not a clue in, in, in the fact that they're afraid. Right? They were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Why were they afraid to ask Jesus this question? Is there a lot of, in the Gospels, there's a lot of times they ask him a question and he explodes in anger at them? No. Jesus, Jesus doesn't have an anger problem, right? He, in fact, he answers their questions. They ask him, hey, how do we pray? And he teaches them, here's how we pray. And we get the Lord's Prayer. Right? There's, a, there's a lot of instances of him answering their questions. So why are they afraid to ask him about it? And I wonder if, if the next passage where we see their pride, they're going to argue about who's the greatest. I wonder if it's not their pride that makes them afraid. Right? They're, not, they're not afraid uh, that, that Jesus is going to get mad at them. I think they're afraid of looking ignorant, of being the disciple who had to ask the question that we didn't understand what Jesus said. I'm not going to ask that question. I'm not going to look, look stupid like that. I wonder, pride does blind us, and I wonder if they were blinded by their pride. Let's look at their pride. Uh, the next, the next uh, part of their immaturity, in verse 46, an argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. Okay, so let's, let's just recap here. We don't know how quickly these, these things actually happened in sequence, but at least from, from what we have, there was the transfiguration. Jesus is glorified on the mountain. Right? <laughs> Peter, James, and John see him. They come down the mountain. Jesus heals this boy that the disciples were unable to heal. Um, everyone's amazed at the greatness of God. Jesus gives them this serious prediction about his, his, uh, his betrayal, right? While people are still amazed at what, what God is doing. And so the next thing is to say, who's the greatest among us? Who do you think the greatest disciple is? You see how insane that is? The people are amazed at the greatness of God. They're like, but which of us is the greatest? Who's the greatest? Their, their pride is silly. Um, and our pride is the same, isn't it? Right, what do we know? We, we've seen the glory of God. We've seen Jesus come. He came for us. Right, we didn't deserve it. All we deserved was God's wrath. But he came and he gave himself for us and he rose from the dead and he saved us by grace. Nothing we could do. It's a gift of God. And then we wake up and we go, oh, I'm better than that person. Look at that, look at that person. I'm gonna put them down in my mind. I'm gonna judge them so that I can lift myself up. I serve better than that Christian. I'm better. Why do we do this? We're foolish. Jesus knows and he sees, he sees them. He says, verse 47, knowing their inner thoughts, which must have been the most disconcerting thing about walking with Jesus. Uh, he knew their inner thoughts. He took a child, little child, and had him stand next to him. Okay, so he takes this child, this little boy, and has them stand up. Now, in, in, the, in ancient culture, they didn't value children like we do. They didn't think, oh, it's a cute little child, right? It, it, children were, were the least. They were unimportant. 
Right? There's some uh, an uh, ancient Jewish writer that uh, that I read in, in one of the commentaries said, uh, you know, it's not even worth it's it's a waste of time to speak to a child before the age of 12 because they can't even study the Torah yet. It's like we're not even a person. That's a waste of time. It's a waste of your. You should do something else. Right? This is. Uh, this is how they viewed children. So they didn't have the kind of sentimental view of children that we have in our culture. So Jesus is pulling someone who's, who's the least. And I think we could, we could, you can translate that, you know, in, into our, our culture, you can translate, uh, you know, prisoners, refugees, orphans, widows, right? The, who is the least in our society? And Jesus would pull them and have them stand beside him and say, just really, really the most amazing thing. Verse 48, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. I don't know if you've ever thought about what this verse means. He says, whoever welcomes this child in my name, welcoming to whoever receives this child, whoever welcomes this child into their home, this was a hospitality term, Right, to, to bring someone in your home, to honor them, to, to give to them, to serve them, to, to respect them, to, to bring them in as a, you would, you would honor an, an equal or higher person right, in, your, in your home. Uh, you would honor them as a guest. And Jesus is saying, if, if because of me, in my name, right, if, you, if because of your loyalty to me, because of how much I mean to you, because of my command, if you welcome, if you receive the least, if you receive this child, then you receive me. And not just me, you receive him who sent me, the Father. This is amazing. I think this, this honors ministries that serve the least of these, doesn't it? Doesn't this verse honor those ministries? Orphans, widows, refugees, prisoners disabled, the elderly, homeless, right? Whoever the, whatever the, whoever the world says, they're not as important. Jesus says, if you welcome them, you welcome me and my father. I, I think about how this, how this applies to, uh, to serving back in Redeemer kids, serving in a class. What are we tempted to think? Oh, it's just an hour of childcare. That's what we're tempted to think. That's not what this says. Because this says, if you welcome, if you're back there in the classroom and the child comes to the door and you welcome them in, you receive them, you love them, you care for them, you, you, you listen to them and, and help them and, and love them, then what have you done? You've received Jesus Christ himself and the Father into your Redeemer Kids classroom for an hour. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, like, I, I couldn't believe this when you're thinking about you're thinking about the implications of this. It's amazing. I, the elementary kids. I know we have a lot of elementary kids in here. I, I know you're you are a kid, all right. But but man, it, it, welcoming welcoming other kids. That's that's this applies too, right? If you're at, at lunch and you're with your friends and you see someone who's sitting by themselves, you know who that is in your class. That, that's the least. That's the person that doesn't have any friends, doesn't have someone that they can sit with that day. And if you go over and you sit with them, you know what I think Jesus would say? If you go sit with them, if you, if you welcome them, if you talk with them, if you love them, 
You're eating lunch with me and my father. He ends it by saying, whoever is least among you, this one is great. Whoever's least among you, this one is great. And I love this because I don't think, uh, I don't think the result of this is the disciples going like, all right, so it's, it's whoever welcomes the most children is the greatest. So I'm gonna try to welcome more children than all my other disciple friends. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna be the greatest disciple. Like, that's, that's not, that it would be a ridiculous, uh, ridiculous application of, of this teaching. Uh, he's saying the, the, the least, in person, least important person in the room, that's the greatest one. That's the great one. Not even greatest, right? There's no, he's saying, I, I think he's not redefining greatness He's demolishing the quest for greatness. He's demolishing it. There's no room in the kingdom of God for prestige, for comparison, for vying for position. There's only room for love. There's only room for love. Love welcomes the least. Love welcomes everyone. And love, love is, is the measure of maturity. We're talking about immaturity and growing to maturity. Man, love is the measure of maturity. I think a lot of people measure maturity different ways in the Christian life. Right? Some, some people think they're very mature because, because they're very gifted. Right? Because they, they speak in tongues. Man, that's Maturity. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. Some people think, man, if, if I have, if I know a lot, if I have a PhD, if I memorize large chunks of scripture, if I have my systematic theology on lockdown, some people think if I have great faith, if I, if I have faith that can move mountains, then I'm mature. What does Paul say? If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but don't have love, what? I'm nothing. You can have all that and be so immature. Some people think it's devotion. If I give up everything, for, for Jesus, then I'm mature. <laughs> no, right? If I, if I give all away all that I have, I give up my body to be burned, I'm going to be burned at the stake for Jesus. But I have not love. I gain nothing. It's pointless. All of that is worthless if we don't have love. Love is the measure of maturity. A mature person, a mature Christian is one who loves, is one who can welcome everyone. And you're like, Lawson, how do I do that practically? Like, what does it look like to really welcome people, welcome the least, welcome everyone? Well, let me give you three questions, three really practical questions. Um, these are from Pete Scazzaro from a book uh, of his. Um, and and I, th- so these are the three, I'll give them to you and then we'll, we'll talk through each of them. The first one is, am I fully present or distracted? Am I fully present or distracted? Two, am I loving or judging? And number three, am I open or closed to being changed? 
I have so appreciated these questions. They're just practical questions. You can just run through your mind in each interaction, and these can help us. Right? Am I fully present, or am I distracted? Right? How, can we, how can we love someone if we're not fully present with them? Right? How can I love someone if I'm on my phone when we're talking? I can't. Right? We're so distracted, aren't we? We're so distracted by our devices. We're so distracted by our busyness. We're so distracted by our to-do list and what we're trying to do and how we, get, how we have to hurry to get there. Some of us don't know how to have a conversation without in, in our mind just thinking about the next thing we're gonna say. Like literally, some of us don't know, have never had a conversation that's not like this, where, where you're, you're, listen, you're, you're ostensibly listening to someone, but you're really just thinking about your next thing and you're just waiting, 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 waiting. Okay, I can say it now. They, they finally shut up. Right? Don't we do this? Aren't we distracted? How can we be fully present with people? How can we love them? I think that's a, a very helpful question. Second, am I loving or judging? Am I loving or judging? I, we're, oh, we're so judgmental, aren't we? This is what Christians are known for. Sad. Right? Because Jesus said, don't judge. We should be the least judgmental person, people in the world. And the reason is, it's great. Being a Christian, the, the, one of the great things about being a Christian is that we know the judge of the universe. He is all-knowing and all-powerful, and nothing gets by him. Did you know that no one gets away with anything in the universe? He's the judge, the perfect judge. And so we never have to judge anyone. Isn't it amazing? We can just offer unconditional love, unconditional love. Right, it, like acceptance, like accepting people as they are, like, like just not being judgmental, not having to disapprove of them, not having to try to manipulate and change them by our disapproval of their actions or their attitudes or what they've done. Am I loving or am I judging? Right, when, when your kids come to you, are you loving or are you judging? Do you, want, do you hear their perspective or do you just think, I know what's going on and oh, here's the, blah, 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 get it, you know. When your spouse comes to you, are you loving him or her or are you judging him or her? Kids, when, you, when your parents talk to you, are you loving them? Are you listening to them? Are you just thinking of the ways that, that you wish they would, be, they would be quiet and leave you alone? Are you judging them for, for having this conversation with you? Am I fully present or distracted? Am I loving or judging? And, and third, am I open or closed to being changed? Am I open or closed to being changed? This might be the hardest one. And, and all this one is saying is, am I, am I willing to see the other person not as an object 
an object to be, to be used or, or to be manipulated or what they can give me or what, they, what kind of status they can confer on me or what entertainment I can get from this conversation? What, what, am I open to seeing this person not as an object but as, as a unique soul made in the image of God? And am I willing to learning, to, to, to learning something from their unique perspective? Where am I not? When my spouse comes, when your spouse comes to you, are you open or are you closed to being changed? Man, sometimes marriages get so hardened to each People get so hardened to each other and they're just always in this. Right? One person, they both, both people think, I'm right. And then they come to each other and neither one will ever change. Right? That, there's no, that's like hitting rocks together. Like there's no chance. There's no softness. There's no humility. There's no recognition. This person, as much as they've hurt me, is someone made in the image of God, someone who God loves. Am I open or am I closed to being changed? And, and surely you've seen interactions like this. You've had them, I'm sure. Surely I've seen people who, who love so well and I've seen them have interactions, small interactions, like at a, at a, a restaurant with a, with a server or at the grocery store with a cashier. They'll just have a little interaction, but it's just so filled with life. Like, man, that's amazing. And why is it? Well, because they treated that person as a person. They were present. They loved them. They were open and they had this interaction where truth was shared. Where love, someone felt loved just by your conversation. This is the call to welcome everyone. Romans fifteen seven says, "Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God." You might say that sounds so hard. How could I love everyone like that? That seems just impossible. And I, I think this gives us a clue. It says, "Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you." Well, how has Christ welcomed you? Well, he is the glorious one, right? the beautiful one, the creator of all things, the, the source of all beauty and goodness and, and truth. And we are his creatures, but creatures who have gone our own way. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned his own way. All have turned aside. Together we've become worthless. No one seeks for good. No one does good. No one seeks for God. This is what Romans 3 says. We have, have by our rebellion, by our sin, we've become worthless. He's the source of good, and we have become worthless and evil. And, And he, the source of good, came to earth, and he put on flesh. He was present with us, and he loved us, and he gave himself for us on the cross. He took our place, and he rose from the dead so that he could welcome us home. And he invites us to his table. We're welcomed in. And the way that we can love the least... We can welcome least is when we, we realize, when this sinks into our bones, that we are the least. I'm the least, and Jesus came for me. How could he love us like that? But he did. He loved the least, and we follow him in this. B.B. Warfield um, has, says this, about Christ and about his self-sacrifice and how it leads us 
to self-sacrifice. Christ was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men fail, there we will be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means richness of development. It means, here's this line, it means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. It means that all the experiences of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. It is, after all, then, the path to the highest possible development by which alone we can be made truly men. We're called to love. We're called to welcome each other. Welcome the least. Welcome everyone. This is maturity. And as long as the disciples were chasing greatness, they were sure to, to wallow in immaturity. They were sure to miss it. And, and we will too. We will too if we choose to pursue greatness. Lastly, the disciples were Territorial. This is verse 49. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. Why did John respond this way? I, I, it's puzzling to me. I don't know. What, what about what Jesus just said made him go, oh, but Jesus, there was this guy who's trying to cast out demons. We stopped. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. It seems like Jesus just said, hey, welcome everyone. And he's like, yeah, but not this kind of guy, right? Whatever, it is, whatever reason, it shows some immaturity that Jesus has to correct. There, there's someone, someone who's not one of the disciples who's casting out demons, driving out demons in the name of Jesus, in his name. Apparently he's being successful, which the disciples weren't being. And so he's a threat to them. Right? He's not one of us. We gotta stop him. And, I, and I, I think we're always tempted to be territorial. Right? We, we, we're tempted to draw arbitrary lines around our church, our denomination, evangelicalism, our type, you know, like our country, our state, whatever it is, uh, whoever we think us is, uh, it, we're always tempted to anyone who's not in our group, whoa, I'm, not, I'm skeptical about them. I don't know about them. But God's work isn't exclusive to our church or our denomination or our country or our tribe or, or our anything, <laughs> right? God's, uh, God's work, he's working all over the world and all kinds of people, all kinds of Christians. And so we shouldn't disparage good ministry that's happening anywhere, Anything that's happening somewhere, that we, if it was happening in our church, we would go, praise God, he, look how he's working. If that's happening somewhere else, 
We should go, praise God. That's great. Give, give them more, Lord. We should root for Christians everywhere. We should root for all the other churches in our town. We should pray for them. It's not a competition. Right, we need, we, and we need each other. We need allies. I learned this overseas. You know, if you're in a, in a foreign country, you know, there's 20 Christians in the city. They're from all different organizations all around the world, all different denominations and backgrounds. Do you know who your church is? Those 20 people. <laughs> and you need each other, man. And it's great, you know. You can get past every difference if you share Christ. And we need each other and we can be the same. Uh, this is a, a, a silly little example, but I remember, uh, I remember many years ago uh, hearing about the, the message translation, right? The, the paraphrase, Eugene Peterson's message Bible. And I remember just in the circles, the theological circles I was listening to, it was like, it was just disparaged. It was like, it's not a real translation. Don't, don't, don't waste your time on that. And, and looking back, and I, I just accepted it. I just thought, okay, that's, okay, that's what people say. Uh, but now looking back, I'm like, man, that's, that's crazy, like, you just have a, a faithful pastor. He's not part of our theological, like, he's not part of our tribe, maybe. But he's a faithful pastor. He's just, like, he starts by paraphrasing the, the Psalms out of the original language so his church could understand them and learn to pray. They're like, yeah, that's horrible, right? <laughs> no, that's great. Like, if that was, ha- that was happening here, then you should be impressed because that means I would know Hebrew. Uh, but besides that, uh, right, the, like, that would be amazing. If one of our pastors was, was paraphrasing scriptures from the original language for our church, like, that would be incredible. And so we, we should look at that and go, praise God for that. Right, our, we need to widen, like, the gospel makes us generous, not judgmental, again. We should be generous, even Paul in, in, in Philippians 1. Remember, he says, some people are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. He's like, they're literally doing it out of bad, they're trying to hurt me. They're doing it out of bad motives. He looks at ministry, he goes, they're, they're, they have bad motives. But then what does he say? Who cares? <laughs> Whatever the case, whether pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. He's like, that's great. They think they're hurting me. They're going to preach gospel more. Good. Let them think that. Like, let them keep preaching Christ. Right, we, we should be generous. We want God to use others. We want the kingdom of God to advance for others to succeed, uh, for, for God to use whoever and whatever means he chooses. Jesus is patient, right? He's patient with us. And, and if you notice here, just, just notice, he could have blasted the disciples for this stuff, couldn't he? Like, are you guys serious? I mean, he does express frustration. You unbelieving and perverse. How long am I to be with you? There's a little bit of Jesus' humanity coming out there, right? Gosh, how, like, this is taking forever, you know? He gets frustrated. Discipleship is slow. There's some encouragement. But, but he's so patient with them. He just teaches them. Okay, well, here's a child, and let me tell you something about the kingdom. The least is the great one, all right? John, don't stop him. Like, here, let me teach you about this. We just don't try to, we're not just trying to shut everybody else down. Uh, this, this, like, he, he just teaches them, and he's patient with them. And, and he wants us to mature, and he's patient with us. Amen? Praise God, he's patient with us. He could blast us if he wanted. Bless me, for sure. But he's patient. But you need to be mature. You need to grow in maturity. We all do. Right? For, for the good of our church. 
for the good of our community, for the good of the world, we need you to love. We need you to grow in love. And one, one way to do this, this is a, a real practical um, thing as, as, we, as we close. The way, the way that God will grow us, right, his plan for our maturity is to be as, as, being, as part of the local church. Okay? It's, it's as part of the local church. This is Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4. If you want to look there, it'll be on the screen. It's Ephesians 4, um, starting in verse 11. It says, he, get, he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Your job is ministry. My job is equipping. Equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity. There it is, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. For, for from him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. There isn't, there isn't growth in the Christian life outside of the local church. This is how God has made us, part of each other. It, we have to be enmeshed together. I don't know what that means for that. I mean, I think it looks different. Like we're, in two weeks, we're going to have our group, uh, a group launch where we're going to promote our groups. And if you're not in a group, that's a great way. You could join that. Get, get in relationships with people. Go have, have lunch with someone from the church. Like get in a Bible study. Do, there's all the different ways that you can get involved in relationships in the local church. You can be, be here and be involved and be enmeshed in relationships because that is how we're going to grow up into Christ. We'll do it together. There's, there's not Lone Ranger Christian growth, right? It's like someone thinking they're an, a marriage expert and they're single. Like, yeah, you're real loving, you know, until you get a roommate and then, <laughs> right? It'll reveal, it's like this, we, we are made for each other. We need each other. And this, this is how God's, God's gonna do it. He's gonna, he's gonna grow us up together and praise God that he does and he gives us each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word um, and for always revealing what we need to hear. Uh, Lord, where we are immature, we just, could we admit that and, and say we need your help? Oh, we need help. We're weak, we're prayerless, and we're proud. We're territorial. And we, and we need your grace. Would you help us, Lord? If there's, um, Lord, for the people in here who don't know you, who haven't experienced your salvation, would you show them your love right now? Would they realize that they are, they are the least, they don't deserve it, but you've loved them as you've loved us. Would you draw them to yourself? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.